Here's tonight's crumpet creams. Irish terror group kill Protestants. Georgian leader gets two-faced treatment. And waiting for God in Porto. Coming up, we put Prince William in charge of the UK's defence policy. Those are the headlines. Snap into it. Nyasha's Bang, bringing the science back to journalism. Mm, 1976. Troubles in Northern Ireland have escalated once again as the South Armagh Republican Action Force, SARAF, have retaliated for the recent killing of six Catholics by gunning down ten Protestants in County Armageddon. The violence, which erupted over a heated game of punch-a-prod, has shocked local communities. I never thought it would come to this, said Seamus Oceananigans, who lost his entire marble collection in the crossfire. We've always had our differences, but we usually settled them with a friendly game of blow up your neighbour's shed. The Seraf, not to be confused with the South Armagh rejects and their hit single, Wanking in the Name of, are known for their hardline stance on everything except queuing. Their latest atrocity brings the total number of civilian casualties up to 24, or as they call it, a quiet Tuesday. Meanwhile, politicians on both sides have condemned the killings, while secretly high-fiving each other for not being involved this time. And in other news... Mikhail Saakashvili, the president of Georgia, has been re-elected in the first competitive presidential election in the country's history. Saakashvili, who also serves as the governor of Ukraine's Odessa Oblast and is currently embroiled in legal issues back home, won by a landslide, literally burying his opponents under an avalanche of ballot papers. The president of Georgia holds a ceremonial role, much like a human paperweight with a flag on it. His main responsibilities include maintaining the country's unity and independence, which he plans to do by holding them together with his bare hands while fending off invaders with his teeth. Sarkashvili's victory has been met with mixed reactions, some hailing him as a hero, others claiming he rigged the election by voting as both Stalin and Gorbachev. However, democracy has finally come to Georgia, albeit wearing handcuffs and being shoved into the back of an unmarked larder. In the world of theatre, a new play has left audiences scratching their heads and checking their watches. Waiting for Godot by Samuel Beckett opened last night to a half-empty house and even emptier stairs. The play, which is two hours long but feels like eternity, follows two men, Vladimir and Estragon, as they wait and wait and wait some more for a chap called Godot. The minimalist set design is praised for its authentic portrayal of nothing happening, while the absurdist dialogue has baffled even the most seasoned of art enthusiasts. One audience member, Nigel from Hackney, said, I've never seen anything like it since I queued for tickets to see cats. Beckett, an Irishman known for his bleak sense of humour, was unavailable for comment as he was too busy staring at his own navel in existential angst. Critics are divided on whether this is a profound statement on the futility of existence or just a load of old tosh. Either way, if you fancy an evening of not much happening, then this is the play for you. Just don't blame us if you leave feeling like you've been waiting your whole life away. And use bang, pushing the truth to the limit one fact at a time. Shakanaka Giles brings us the latest weather update. Bundle up as the United Kingdom braces for a frosty morning, snowfall, and howling winds.
It's going to be a frosty one tomorrow. Across the United Kingdom, temperatures will plummet to a teeth-chattering zero degrees Celsius. That's the kind of cold that makes your morning shower feel like a tropical paradise. A few scattered showers are expected. Nothing too dramatic, just enough to make you question whether you've left the sprinklers on. Now, for those of you in the southeast, be prepared for a gusty day. It'll be like trying to walk against a strong wind while carrying a dozen helium balloons. And in Scotland, the winds will be howling like a pack of wolves, so hold on to your hats. It's the kind of wind that'll make you feel like you're in a hurricane, minus the actual danger. In summary then, a frosty morning, scattered showers and gusty winds in the southeast. Stay warm everyone, and that's all the weather. Uh, 1991. The United States Embassy in Mogadishu, Somalia was evacuated by helicopter today in 1991 amidst the raging Somali civil war. The embassy, a base for the United States Agency for International Development, was no match for the resistance against the military junta led by Siad Bare. Operation Eastern Exit marked the end of an era as the Bare government was toppled in 1991, plunging the nation into chaos. And now, for an in-depth look at the evacuation, we turn to our correspondent, Brian Bustable. This is Mogadishu, the most wretched hive of scum and villainy in the known universe. I stand here, a lone reporter, surrounded by the stench of death and the screams of the damned. The year is 1991, and the United States Embassy, a beacon of hope in this war-torn wasteland, is under siege. The sound of gunfire echoes through the streets like the howling of a thousand banshees. As I speak, a convoy of armoured vehicles, their engines roaring like the very fires of hell, approaches the embassy. The soldiers within, clad in body armour and helmets, look like the very embodiment of death itself. The embassy, a once proud symbol of American power, now lies in ruins, its walls pockmarked with bullet holes and its windows shattered. The flag, once a symbol of freedom and democracy, lies in the dirt, trampled underfoot by the savage hordes that surround it. Inside, the situation is dire. The staff, brave men and women, huddle together, their faces etched with fear and despair. They know that their only hope lies in the hands of the soldiers outside and the helicopters that will carry them to safety. As I watch, the first helicopter appears, its rotors cutting through the air like the blades of a thousand scythes. It lands and the soldiers rush out, their faces grim and determined. They fight their way through the hordes, their weapons blazing, and reach the embassy. The staff rush out, their faces filled with relief and gratitude. They board the helicopters and as they take off, the sound of their engines is like the sweetest music to my ears. 
This is Brian Bastable reporting from the heart of the storm for Newsbang. 2003. In a chilling reminder of the ever-present threat of terror, London police have apprehended six individuals suspected of conspiring to unleash a cloud of ricin upon the city's underground. The Metropolitan Police, with their specialised counter-terrorism measures, thwarted the plot, although no traces of the potent toxin were discovered. Rikin, a lethal substance derived from the castor oil plant, could have wreaked havoc on the London underground, a rapid transit system serving the metropolis and its environs. For more on this unfolding story, we turn to our correspondent, Ken Shit. Tonight, we're taking you back to the year 2003, a time when fear gripped the heart of London like a vice. The Metropolitan Police Service, those fine upstanding gentlemen and women who keep our city safe from harm, arrested six individuals on suspicion of plotting to unleash a deadly toxin on the London underground. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were a terrorist with access to writing, a substance so potent it can kill within hours, I'd be looking for something a little more impactful than our beloved tube network. But hey, who am I to question the genius of these so-called terrorists? Anyway, back to our story. The police swooped in and arrested these six miscreants, no doubt sending shivers down the spines of every commuter in town. But here's the kicker. They found no ricin, not a single trace. So, what was the point of all this drama? Was it just another case of the boys in blue overreacting like a bunch of trigger-happy cowboys? Or was there something else going on behind the scenes? This one smells fishier than a decomposing whale carcass on a hot summer's day. Stay tuned for more explosive revelations as we delve deeper into this murky affair. In this age of heightened security and constant surveillance, we must ask ourselves, are we really any safer? Or are we just living in a world where fear is the new normal? Ken Shit signing off for now. Stay vigilant out there. 2009. In a landmark decision, Singapore's Court of Appeal, the highest court in the land, has ruled that equality before the law is attainable through a reasonable nexus between state action and the purpose of the law. The case in question, Eng Fung Ho V. Attorney General, revolved around the compulsory acquisition of land for public purposes, sparking concerns of unequal treatment based on religious affiliation. The court's ruling emphasizes the importance of equal protection and justice for all individuals, a principle that categorically rejects legal slavery. For a deeper dive into the implications of this landmark case, we turn to our resident legal expert, Hardiman Pesto. It's 2009, Martin. We're at the dawn of a new era where every man, woman and child will be treated equally under the law. No matter your race, religion or favourite flavour of ice cream. Pesto, we're not here to discuss the intricacies of confectionery preference. We're here to discuss the landmark court case of Eng Fung, Hovey Attorney General. Yes, that's right, it's a big one. It's like trying to swallow a beach ball. Pesto, what is the significance of this case? Well, it's about equality, Martin. It's about making sure everyone gets a fair shake. Yes, Pesto, but how does it relate to the compulsory acquisition of land for public purposes? Well, it's like this. Imagine you're at a party and you're having a great time. But then the police come in and say, everyone out, and they take your beer. Pesto, that's not an accurate analogy. It's not? No, it's not. Well, it's the best I could come up with. Pesto, let's try to focus on the case. 
What was the issue at hand? Well, there was this guy, Eng Fung Ho, when he had a piece of land, but the government wanted to take it for public purposes. And what was the problem with that? Well, it turned out that the government was taking land from people of a certain religion and not from others. And how did the Court of Appeal rule? They said that it's okay for the government to take land for public purposes, but they have to do it in a way that's fair to everyone. And what does that mean? It means that the government can't take land from one group of people just because they don't like them. Pesto, that's a gross oversimplification. It is. Yes, it is. Well, it's the best I could come up with. Pesto, thank you. Pesto Hardiman, live from Singapore. D. 1949. In 1949, President Harry S. Truman, the 33rd POTUS, delivered his State of the Union speech, championing the significance of a fair deal for every citizen. Truman, who served from 1945 to 1953, introduced the Marshall Plan, the Truman Doctrine, and NATO. His Fair Deal, a collection of domestic reforms, met resistance from the Conservative Congress. Although some minor initiatives succeeded, most major proposals were rejected. Now, CBN's Melody Wintergreen delves into the aftermath of Truman's speech. Capitol Hill is abuzz with the spirit of 49 as President Harry S. Truman stands before a Congress as cold as the Cold War, pitching a hot deal that's anything but fair in their eyes. It's the fair deal, ladies and gentlemen, a smorgasbord of social reforms sizzling on the legislative griddle, ready to serve up civil rights, health care, and education like never before. But conservative congressmen are sharpening their knives, ready to carve up Harry's hearty helping of hope. Truman, the haberdasher-turned-head of state, isn't just stitching together a new suit for Uncle Sam. He's proposing a complete wardrobe overhaul. The Marshall Plan and NATO are his foreign policy fedoras, but it's the domestic derby hat he's doffing today. He speaks of a square deal for every man. Yes, even the man in the moon if he were an American taxpayer. Yet, as Truman touts his tailor-made policies from sea to shining sea, there's a seamstress of skepticism sowing discord through the ranks. Initiatives like minimum wage hikes and housing projects are getting hemmed in by a thimble-thin margin. So here we stand at the crossroads of history, where Truman's fair deal is either a hand of poker or a house of cards, depending on which side of the aisle you're seated. Will it be a full house for Harry, or will Congress call his bluff? Only time will tell if this fair deal becomes a New Deal 2.0 or fades into the footnotes of filibustered fantasies. This is Melody Wintergreen, reporting from Capitol Hill, where history hangs by a thread in the tapestry of American ambition. <laughs> News bang! The gavel of truth is heavy, but it hits hard. Penelope Windchime takes us on a journey through time, recounting the passing of Sir Ernest Shackleton in 1922 and the devastating earthquake in Tonghai County, China, in 1970. Ah, the whispers of history rustle through the leaves of time, and today they speak to us of the year 1922. The great Ernest Shackleton, a titan amongst Antarctic explorers, succumbed not to the icy clutches of his beloved wasteland, but to a treacherous heart attack during his final quest, the Shackleton Rowett expedition. Tis said he died with ice in his beard and a compass in his hand, 
forever pointing south. Leap forward to 1970, where the earth itself did tremble and roar in Tonghai County, southern China. A magnitude 7.1 earthquake unleashed its fury upon the land, claiming at least 10,000 souls. This cataclysm birthed China's largest earthquake monitoring system from its own ashes. The Red River Fault became an infamous seamstress, stitching a tapestry of destruction across Yunnan province. So let us remember these events with a tear for Shackleton's icy repose and a shudder for Tonghai's trembling earth. For history is but nature's storybook and we are naught but characters within it. I'm Penelope Winchime, signing off with a salute to those who've weathered the storms of yesteryears. Polybeep brings us updates on the roads, skies and seas. The Taiwan High Speed Rail is making waves, while the Tasman Bridge in Hobart faces disruption after a ship collision. Stay vigilant on the A185. Safe travels. Welp, it's Friday, the 2019-129, and we're off to a spiffing start. Let's take a gander at the roads, the skies and the seas, and we'll start with the Taiwan high-speed rail. The year is 2007, and the Taiwan high-speed rail is causing quite the stir. It's like a bullet train on a mission, zigzagging from Taipei to Kaohsiung, a good 350 kilometres. It's a sight to behold, and if you're on the A1 near Newcastle, you might just catch a glimpse of it. Now, if you're on the M25, you might want to swerve around the Tasman Bridge in Hobart, Tasmania. It's a bit of a disaster, I'll be blimming. A ship named Lake Illawarra had a bit of a collision with the bridge, and it's caused a bit of a stir. The River Derwent is now a bit of a no-man's land, and if you're on the A185, you might want to steer clear. In other news, the Tasman Bridge disaster is causing quite the stir. The ship's master is in a bit of a spot, and the Tasman Sea is now a bit of a no-man's land. If you're on the A185, you might want to steer clear. So, all in all, it's a day of firsts on our roads, skies and seas. Until our next wild rendezvous, keep your rotors spinning and your engines purring. This is Polly Beep, dropping the mic, then promptly tripping over it. Mm. 2005. Calamity Prenderville, your guide for all things science-related, delves into the British discovery of the dwarf planet Eris in 2005. Get ready for a journey filled with British ingenuity and astronomical intrigue. Tonight we're taking you back to the year 2005 when the dwarf planet Eris was discovered. Now, I know what you're thinking. Eris, isn't that the goddess of strife and discord? And to that I say, yes, indeed it is. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Eris was discovered using images from the Samuel Oshin telescope at Palomar Observatory, which is owned and operated by Caltech. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm always impressed when British ingenuity is involved, even if it's just in name. So let's give a big round of applause for the British-sounding Samuel Oshin telescope. Now, 
Eris is the most massive and second-largest known dwarf planet in the solar system. It's the ninth most massive object orbiting the Sun and the largest object in the solar system that has not been visited by a spacecraft. And, as we all know, the British are known for their love of massive, unvisited objects. Just look at the Queen's handbag. But, in all seriousness, this is a remarkable discovery. Eris was discovered in 2005, and it's already causing quite the stir in the scientific community. And, as always, Britain is at the forefront of it all. So, let's give a big cheer for British innovation and the discovery of Eris, the dwarf planet that's causing all the fuss. And as we like to say here at Newsbank, keep watching the skies and keep believing in British innovation. This is Calamity Prenderville signing off. Newsbang, pulling the plug on the punchline of propaganda. The Citizen, 1953. And in the world of culture, the year 1953 has brought us the groundbreaking play Waiting for Godot. Samuel Beckett, the Irish playwright and novelist, has delivered a masterclass in minimalism and absurdity. The play follows two characters, Vladimir and Estragon, as they wait for Godot, who never shows up. It's a bleak and tragicomic portrayal of life, leaving audiences pondering the meaning of existence. Now to delve deeper into the world of Waiting for Godot, we turn to our culture correspondent, Smithsonian Moss. Now at this point of the evening, we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us. Wah-ho, Smithsonian Moss here, and I am absolutely buzzing to bring you the latest in culture news. You know, I've been thinking about life, the universe, and everything, and I've come to the conclusion that we're all just waiting for Godot. But seriously, folks, today we're talking about a play that's so mind-bendingly bizarre, it's like watching a Charlie Chaplin film while tripping on acid. That's right, I'm talking about Waiting for Godot, the 1953 play by Samuel Beckett that's so minimalist, it's like watching a game of chess between two snails. Now let me set the scene for you. It's 1953, and the world is still reeling from the aftermath of World War II. But fear not because Beckett is here to remind us that life is a never-ending cycle of waiting for something that never comes. The play follows two characters, Vladimir and Estragon, who are like the odd couple of the absurdist world. They're waiting for this mysterious figure named Godot, who never actually shows up. It's like the Groundhog Day of the 50s, but with more disappointment. But fear not, my friends because Beckett is here to remind us that life is a never-ending cycle of waiting for something that never comes. So, there you have it, folks. Waiting for Godot, the play that's so minimalist, it's like watching a game of chess between two snails. It's like the black hole of theater, but with more existential dread. That's all for now, my friends. Keep it locked on Newsbang for more culture updates, and don't forget to tune in tomorrow for our special report on whether Godot exists. Waho. News bang, truth's bitch, serving the factual since yesterday. And now for the final roundup of tomorrow's front pages. The Times, Trump rioters, storm capital. The Telegraph, Henry VIII marries Anne of Cleves. The Mail, Kerrigan kneecapped by ice rink Yahoo. 
and the son, Tonya Harding's husband in Batten Blunder. That's it. And now it's time for me to go. I'm off to join the queue for the Great Emu War. I'll be back in a moment. No, I won't. Goodbye. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night. <laughs>